Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So today is Tuesday, October 4th, two days from now, Thursday, October 6th. Alberta politics will change. How much it'll change, I guess, remains to be seen. But we will have a new premier uh, come Thursday night when the actual swearing-in takes place. Uh, I'm not sure about the logistics, but look, we'll know who the next leader of the UCP is and by extension, Alberta's next premier. Now, just to give you a heads up, we'll be on the air from 6 to 8 on Thursday evening, bringing you those results as they come in. Not everybody's been following the race, but I think everyone has an interest in knowing the outcome because it does affect us all. But it does raise an interesting question, doesn't it? I mean, we've got party members, and not all party members, uh, but party members deciding who the next premier is. And this has been a race very much targeted at those party members. So Albertans outside the party could be forgiven for maybe not have followed all of this closely. Now, in the context of a leadership race, it's, it's probably hard to get a good idea of, you know, who's leading, who's in second place, how that's all shaping up. I think based on a variety of factors, I mean, I think we have a good idea probably of who the front runner is. But it's a, it's a more straightforward question, I think, to, to ask, is this resonating? Like, what is the perception of the party? Is any of this helping to lift the party? Because that's one of the things you might expect or hope to come from a leadership race that raises the profile of the party. It's kind of a fresh start maybe for the party. I don't know if that's what this is. Well, joining us for some further thoughts on all of them, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, one of Alberta's most respected pollsters, Janet Brown, pollster and political commentator. Janet, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. First of all, on that question, because you know we've seen some attempts to survey you know conservative voters in Alberta, we've seen internal polls being leaked from some of the candidates. But how difficult is it to to poll a race like this? Well, to poll a race like this, you need access to the membership list, and so for a pollster like me, there's no ethical way to get my hands on that list because right. it is the possession of the party. Um, now we have heard leaks of some polling that's been done by um, various candidates, Danielle Smith in particular, and those polls suggest that she has 45% support. Now, I'm not saying those polls are right or not, but we don't really have any details about those polls. We don't know the methodology. We don't know, um, uh, you know, how representative they are, that sort of thing. Um, the other thing that sort of made me laugh when I saw those polling results is they indicate that Danielle Smith um, headed to get about 45% on the first ballot. And intuitively, that sounds right. But at the same time, if I were Danielle Smith, that's exactly the result I would want my supporters to think I had. I'd want them to think I had lots of momentum, but I wouldn't want them to think we had it in the bag. So, <laughs> so you know, she may have 45% support, or that may just have been the most effective message to send to her supporters um, at this point in the race. Right. And I mean, you know, we could ask Jim Denning or Ted Morton what, what being a front runner leadership race in Alberta <laughs> looks like. So it can be unpredictable. But I do think based on not just those leaked polls, but just kind of how the other candidates almost have, have been going after her, it certainly feels like she's the front runner. 
you know, it does. So, um, you know, polls are just sort of one um, predictor of these things. I look at sort of some other predictors as well. And and one of the things I look at is how the campaigns are acting, how the candidates are acting. And Danielle Smith is definitely acting like she is the front runner. And the other six candidates are acting like Danielle Smith, the front runner. So I assume they're working with the best information out there. And everybody seems to be chasing um, that particular rabbit. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, Jim Dinning and, and other people who were the front runner who didn't end up winning. But, you know, I would just to remind people that the rules of this race are very different from the rules of past progressive conservative races. And, you know, in the race where Jim Dinning lost to um, uh, lost to Ed Stelmack and Gary Marr lost to Alison Redford, Memberships were being sold right up to the last minute on those votes. And then there was a a vote, and then there was a runoff two weeks later among the top three candidates, and they were selling memberships between those two races. I mean, this is very different because you had to have your membership on August 12th. That's almost two months ago. So um, it, it's it's not this it's not the same dynamic as it was for the previous PC races. Yeah, that's true. Um, in, in terms of the the tone of the race, it, it's pretty clear that you know the the candidates are are targeting a certain demographic, their base, conservative mm-hmm. voters, which makes sense, obviously, uh, under the circumstances, but. You know, in terms of whether this is helping the party brand, whether any of this is speaking to the concerns that Albertans more generally have at the moment, what's your sense of that? Well, because the um, cutoff to buy a leadership was so long ago, um, really to get people um, enthusiastic enough to buy a membership two months ahead of a vote, you really had to go after the most impassioned voters, Um, you know, the people that were most enthusiastic about this race, most enthusiastic about making a change. Um, and, And those enthusiastic people hold different views than the more, you know, dispassionate people. So um, this is where Danielle Smith's tactics were excellent. She she looked to see who the most activated voters were, the most emotional voters, and she zeroed in on them. And she got them to come out to meetings, and she got them to buy memberships. And those candidates that focused on more mainstream attitudes, I mean, to me, in a way, it seemed to make more sense that they were talking about the things that the average Albertan were talking about. But it doesn't seem that that got people to meetings. It got people to buy membership. So we're now in this place right now where the type of voter who holds a membership to the UCP party is not very representative of the population as a whole. So has this maybe hurt the UCP brand in a way? Well, you know, you said off the top that leadership races are usually something that lifts a party. Usually it's sort of a party decides that, you know, they could do better under another leader, they change leaders, and then the leadership race gives them a lift. It certainly happened to the federal conservatives um, when Pierre Polyev won. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the case here for the UCP. It seems like this race is doing damage to the UCP brand. Um, it seems that the average voter is looking at this race and just kind of saying, like, I don't think our governing party really knows what we care about. Um, you know, we're hearing so much focus on sovereignty and autonomy and freedom. These are the buzzwords of the UCP campaign. Meanwhile, the average person is thinking about inflation and cost of living and trying to get the healthcare system back on track after COVID and, you know, trying to get the education system back on track after, you know, kids miss so much in-person learning. And so there's a huge disconnect between the UCP party, the governing party of Alberta, 
and the people are, that are being governed. And it appears that it's really, um, it's really been detrimental to the UCP brand. And I want to point this out, you know, just just to to establish a point here that you know you've made the the argument before. We've talked about it that a lot of pollsters do miss. Uh, a lot of the conservative vote in Alberta. When we looked at the 2019 election, you know, your polling was a lot closer to the final result than other pollsters who suggested maybe it was a closer race. So I I say all of that, um, you know, to ask the question, because you've had some polling recently that did show that the UCP was still leading the NDP, but maybe that's starting to change. How, How are things shaping up when we sort of look party versus party ahead to spring of next year? Well, what's interesting about my polling is it seems to have been bumping around quite a bit from the time that Jason Kenney's leadership fell into question, from the time he announced that he was leaving and the leadership race. And and here's how I sort of look at that from a methodological point of view. When you ask people if they would, if an election were held today, how would you vote? That's a hypothetical question because we're not having an election today. And that question becomes even more hypothetical when you don't know who's going to be leading the UCP party. So, um, yeah, there's been periods where my polling is showing the UCP ahead. And that's when, you know, people are 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 thinking about the balanced budget and thinking about the fact that we're getting away from COVID and that sort of thing. But when you specifically ask people to think about their voting behavior under the new the, any one of the seven leaders that are are, are running in this leadership race, um, then their responses aren't quite as positive for for the UCP. So, as I said, I mean I ask those questions, but but I always say to clients those are the least important questions I ask in a survey. Voting intention is bouncing around right now. Once we get a new leader, um, then expect a whole bunch of polls um, where people try and get at the exact scenario of Leader X going head-to-head with Rachel Notley. But I think ultimately what does matter is what voters are concerned about Mm -hmm. and and whether the leader's addressing them. And and maybe it's a different dynamic when you have a governing party. Maybe it's a little more awkward. Like I think Pierre Polyev has resonated because he's he's speaking to a lot of issues that I think do resonate. He's talking about inflation and cost of living and, and all of those issues. You know, this talk about the Alberta Sovereignty Act or rehashing, you know, the vaccine debate, that does seem out of step with what I suspect are top concerns of Albertans right now. Yeah, and if you look at Pierre Polyev, early on in the race, he was talking about COVID and convoys and vaccinations and freedom. He was talking about making Canada the freest country in the world. Well, by the end of that campaign, he had shifted and he was focused on inflation and just inflation and the cost of bacon. He had made that transition through the course of the campaign. And maybe for Pierre Polyev, he was able to make that transition because his lead was was so substantial that maybe he felt he could make that pivot. And although Danielle Smith like, looks like the front runner, this does seem to be a more competitive race than the one that Polyev just won. So, so there's that difference. Also, Pierre Polyev has become leader of the opposition. The leader of the the, the winner of the UCP race will become the premier. So, so Pierre Polyev has several months still before he asked to face the general electorate. Um, You know, so here in Alberta, to see this race that was so focused on issues that aren't resonating as important issues with the average Albertan, um, this new leader, whoever it is, is going to have a hard, is going to have to make that pivot 
if they're going to be successful in the next election. My belief is that the parties that win elections are the parties whose policies best align with the concerns of Albertans. The the UCP won handily in 2019 because they were talking about jobs, economy, pipelines, and those are exactly the three issues that I was getting in my polling when I asked people the most important issue. But now when I ask people that question, it's cost of living, health care, education. So there's a big disconnect right now between what people care about and what the governing party seems to be talking about. Very interesting. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, should be an interesting week and very interesting next <laughs> few months for sure. Janet, uh, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, Janet Brown, uh, pollster, political commentator, uh, her thoughts on you know, kind of how this race is playing with Albertans more generally. Also, you know, that point she raised earlier about how tricky it is to try to measure how to gauge a race like this, unless you've got access to the membership to poll them, it's hard to get a good read. So we've heard some, some polls leaked. Uh, you know, and there's obviously some strategy involved in leaking polls. It's, it's hard to know. I think it's fair to say. I think probably most people would concede that, okay, yeah, Daniel's the front runner, probably Travis Taves, Brian Jean, kind of in the mix, sort of in, in second place, and then the rest of the pack. But it's hard to say that uh, for certain. We'll know for sure on Thursday night, obviously, and uh, we'll see where politics in Alberta goes from here. But there is a big difference, I think, when you're Pierre Polyev and you're running to lead the Conservative Party, and you can focus a message on change. Uh, you know, you can run down all the, the terrible things the government is doing and how you're going to address all of that. When you're running to lead the governing party, that's a little more awkward. Because you're on the one hand, you are running against the legacy, to some extent, of the, the person who just got tossed overboard. But you're still running to lead this party. So there's a tricky balance to, to walk there between, you know, we're going to change some things, but we're still, you know, pretty good in terms of what we're doing. Anyway, do you think there's a disconnect between some of the issues that have been dominating this race and the concerns that Albertans have at the moment? Do you think that this has, as Janet Brown suggested, damaged or tarnished the brand of the UCP? Are they better off with whoever wins this race than they would have been with keeping Jason Kenney? To what extent is Rachel Notley uh, excited here or worried here about any of this? And we often think of this in terms of whether our favorite team can keep our favorite player or whether they can sign more and better players, whether our team can improve, whether we can cheer for a Stanley Cup contender. The NHL salary cap is up this year for the first time in a few years, $82.5 million. But it's actually forecast to be about $10 million higher within about four years, maybe all the way up to $92 million. So like I say, we tend to focus that, okay, well, who can my team sign? Who do they have room for? When you take a step back, there's a really interesting business story here. The NHL is big business, like multi-billion dollar business. The NHL is not the NFL or even the NBA or Major League Baseball. Uh, The NHL is certainly a successful business. If we can quantify it as a business, I mean, you could argue the Oilers are a business. The Flames are a business. But obviously, at the end of the day, this is all about the league. The NHL is the business, and it is big business. But they have to be flexible. They have to be creative. And they've certainly been that. And obviously, like a lot of businesses, the NHL has had to navigate the last few years. Having the league shut down, having to do a, a bubble playoffs, having to play games in front of no fans. And now to be in a position where their salary cap is growing because revenues are growing. Not everybody likes the ads on the helmets. Not everybody likes the ads on the jerseys. 
but it speaks to where the NHL is trying to be innovative. So it's an interesting story here, not just in the world of pro sports, but in the business world period in terms of what can be learned from when the NHL has had success and where maybe they've had some stumbles along the way. There's a new book out that explores this in greater detail. It's called Business the NHL Way, Lessons from the Fastest Game on Ice. And joining us this afternoon are the two authors of this book. We have with us on the line Norm O'Reilly is Dean of the Graduate School of Business at the University of Maine. Norm, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Let's bring in your co-author as well here. Rick Burden is the David B. Falk Professor of Sport Management at Syracuse University. Rick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks so much for having us on. All right, well, I'll put it to both of you. We can start with you, Norm. I mean, both of you have a background in hockey, so you got some familiarity with the game. But what is it about, you know, the NHL and its success, its position in North American Major League Sports that, that makes it such a fascinating study? Well, Rob, yeah, thanks, and thanks for having us. And as we really articulate in the book, I mean, the NHL, as you know, has had its, its great times, its problems, its challenges, like any league has. But it's unquestionable the business success of the league if you go back 30 years and the increase in revenues the revenue share the value of teams we did research as little as 10 years ago where we say owning an nhl team is just not a good decision unless you're in toronto or new york Mm -hmm. and now basically every club has got significant value in franchises so it's really this wonderful success and what is that really good management they've done a lot of the things they've copied the nfl in terms of their collective bargaining agreement they've copied the nba and some of their marketing done a lot of unique things it's cross-border there's a number of factors we outline that have really driven its success with the speed of the game but the financial growth is an unquestionable success yeah further to that rick i mean the success of pro sports is not inevitable there are plenty of stories of, of franchises that have failed leagues that have failed uh so there, there's there's certainly no guarantees when it comes to pro hockey in north america there really aren't and and i think if you're not showing consistent growth um, the owners themselves will step in, and the fact that Gary Bettman has been the commissioner now for 30 years speaks to the fact that the, the trend line kind of on the financial side, and sometimes that's stuff that, that fans don't want to hear about. They, they just appreciate the game for the beauty of it. But back in 1995-96, the league did less than a billion dollars in, in revenues. Uh, this past year, they went over $5 billion. So, that, you know, that's five times growth, and, and it's a pretty much, it looks like a hockey stick of a sort from, yeah. you know, where the league was uh, back in the early 90s to where it is today and, and where it's headed towards, um, which is probably going to, you know, go past $6 billion, I imagine, within uh, two or three years. I did want to talk about, you know, the last few years and, you know, pro sports obviously had to navigate the pandemic. But I mean, so did all kinds of industries, hospitality, travel, tourism. I mean, you know, we, we could run down the list of, you know, how businesses have had to navigate the pandemic. But what's what's notable about pro sports or the NHL in, in particular here, Norm? I'll go first. I'm sure Rick has some examples for that. Let's just give one great example. There's many. You talk about esports, et cetera. Let's take sponsorship. And literally 10 years ago, sponsorship in, in the National Hockey League was about rink boards. And you mentioned in, in the intro about now the jerseys. We talked about the outdoor games, branded activations, craft, hockeyville. We could go down the list. All these wonderful innovations that were good for the brand. I really celebrated all that hockey had to offer. meant something to the fans. The fans got engaged. And their sponsorship revenues have spiraled up. The brands that are working with the league have increased in value and level. Just one of examples, to go across the board of their kind of business tactics, 
You see the sophistication, understanding their fans, more creative and digital ways to do things, and sponsorship is one great example. Yeah, Rick, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think I just add on to it by saying that all of the sports leagues have had to become global businesses. Yeah. They've, they've had to really incorporate the fact that they operate in a global economy. So if you look at the appeal of the NHL today in Finland, Norway, Sweden, Germany, uh, and we talk in, in the book about just really all over the globe, and there's a lot of people who would say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of countries that don't have ice, and there's a lot of places where skating is kind of not a natural outdoor thing. And yet we've had Tampa Bay the last couple of years be the most dominant team in the NHL. Um, I think the, the NHL, if you look at their expansion, went into southern markets and proved it can work. And and I think right now, I may be alone on this, and, and Norm may talk to me later on and say, where are you going with that? But, <laughs> you know, I, I think with um, the with the war going on in Europe, and I have to imagine the KHL has been very much decimated by everything going on over there, that the NHL is more important than ever before. Well, and it gets to one of the themes in the book, right, where there's some, some lessons here that, you know, for the NHL to succeed, you've got to identify and be a step ahead of your competition. But... What is that competition? Is it the competition, you know, that the, the Rangers are competing against the Knicks or is, you know, the competition of the NHL and the KHL or are you competing against uh, other entertainment? Like what, what is the NHL's competition? That's a great question. I mean, you could sit in one of our MBA classes and, and, and find it fascinating. You hit the nail on the head. It's any entertainment options. The way we like to characterize it, it comes down to you and one of your friends are deciding what to do on a Saturday night. Right? You got to trip away. What do you want to do? So we can go to Vegas and watch your favorite team play the Golden Knights in a game and mm-hmm. go gambling and enjoy all the strip pass to offer. Or you could do many other things. So really at its core. And that's where the teams have become very sophisticated. And a lot of our former students are working for these clubs and doing these kind of things is that they're thinking about the, the customer, the fan, versus all of the entertainment options, right down to going to the movies or staying home tonight. Those are alternative options when someone's thinking about, I'm going to go to an NHL game. And then we have the second piece we'd add is that the incredible growth of the digital viewership in a variety of different forms, whether it's an esports version, whether it's you know watching digitally, whether it's following, et cetera, are all in that same context. Why would someone watch a hockey game versus a Netflix show. And so you have to be thinking at that level in terms of your competition. Right. And how important is understanding your own brand in all of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both of you just hit it on the head. And, and, you know, you bring up a key word when you say brand. And, And when we talk about the shield, the NHL logo, you know, what are, what do we conjure up? What do we see? What are we thinking about? Uh, and I think the quality of the hockey the last couple of years has been amazing despite the pandemic. And I think the NHL, you've got to give them some credit that they really managed the pandemic really well in the fact that uh, you had a two-country league um, and the NHL was, I thought, savvy enough to put together an idea where all the Canadian teams played against each other when teams couldn't cross the border ultimately leading to a safe Stanley Cup. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about what the future holds as well. And, you know, we've seen obviously a lot of change, for example, when it comes to embracing gaming and and becoming really sophisticated. Obviously, the virtual world and esports, you know, that becomes a part of the conversation. And I guess for any business to succeed, you, you need to understand what you're up against now, but you also need to look ahead, right? What are we up against next year and the year after? How forward thinking do you sense the NHL has been and 
what are the lessons to be drawn from that? It, Man, I'd I'll love go to have first, you come Rick. out on tour with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, Rick and Jeff, but I think it's, this is a great one to look at other leagues who haven't done it. So one of the, you know, the famous kind of things we talked about in class, one of the three most popular sports in the United States that is probably somewhat similar in Canada, you know, 50 years ago, we talk about baseball and you talk about horse racing. And why haven't these sports kind of kept up? And baseball was clearly the number one for many, many years. Have they fixed things recently? Yeah, they've gotten better. But they really stayed traditional. They kind of refused to, to change the game or speed it up. We write chapters on how the NHL, at, at, a, at a huge cost to some of their historical records and some of their hardcore fans, changed the game, made it faster, reduced fighting, changed equipment of goalies, tried to get more scoring, did the overtime, all these things. And look at baseball, they could, could barely get the intentional walk to come through, which basically doesn't change the game or make it much shorter. So they, other leagues have been way smarter. You look at some of the what other, like the, the rugby sevens and these kind of leagues, what they've done. But generally speaking, they've been willing to take some risks where other leagues haven't and that's fit better with their younger fan base in a more digital world really worth noting rob that if you're not connecting with you know today's seven-year-old and that's a seven-year-old who's growing up on a variety of platforms and, and those platforms incorporate streaming technology and and if you don't recognize not just 5G technology, but 6G technology, which is not that far away, or virtual reality, uh, artificial intelligence. All of those pieces are got to be factored into how we're going to talk to the next generation of fans. And the NHL isn't perfect, and, and they make mistakes. And, and I think we speak about those in the book as well. But we're just so impressed without being... Um, uh, apologists or, or even necessarily fans. I think if you just kind of strip things down and you look at it and you say, what have they done? Have they made the right choices? I think more often than not, we landed on the fact that they've really done some very valuable things to drive the business forward. We'll leave it on that note. Uh, some fascinating stuff. The book is called Business, the NHL Way Lessons from the Fastest Game on Ice. Norm, Rick, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Rob, this. very much. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Normal Riley, uh, who is the dean at the uh, Graduate School of Business at the University of Maine, and Rick Burton, David B. Falk, Professor of Sport Management at Syracuse University, co-authors of Business the NHL Way. And so an interesting look at where the uh, NHL has really established a footing in the world of pro sports. But again, as they say, it's not just pro sports you're competing against. Uh, for the entertainment dollars. So there, there's some lessons maybe more broadly applied to, to the business world in general in terms of understanding your brand, understanding your competition, the value of solid leadership. All of these things can go a long way. Right? The NHL has been perfect, as they say, and I know a lot of people roll their eyes when you talk about Gary Bettman. Um, but we look at where they were at 20 or 30 years ago, where they're at now, and where they're going to be in a few years with the expectation that you're going to see some big jumps in the salary cap. That's a reflection of how strong the league is to have gone through, you know, the last two or three years of the pandemic and to be in that position. I mean, that, that speaks quite highly of, of the success of their business model. It was election day in Quebec yesterday. Um, not a lot of drama. I think everyone expected the uh, CAQ, uh, the governing party led by Francois Legault, to be reelected. And my goodness, they were. 63 seats are needed for a majority uh, in Quebec's National Assembly. The uh, Coalition Avenir Quebec won 90. Pretty big majority, mind you, with 41% of the vote. Like there, By the way, just as an aside, 
And, and it, once again, it's kind of an indictment of our system. You know, our system works in a lot of ways. There are some, some flaws definitely like this. Uh, so the Quebec Liberals are the official opposition, 21 seats. They got 590,000 votes. The Conservative Party of Quebec had 530,000 votes. They got zero seats. Um, interestingly, the uh, party Quebec Solidaire had more votes than the Liberals, but only had 11 seats compared to 21 for the Liberals. Uh, so that'll fuel the debate, I'm sure, around electoral reform. Ultimately, I, I assume our system's not really going to change. Nonetheless, moving on, the bigger story here is Francois Legault. And what a powerful political figure he has become. Look, the, the whole nature of politics in Quebec has changed probably forever. You know, for the longest time, it was either the Quebec Liberals or the Parti Québécois. Now, the PQ is, is basically a non-factor to some extent. Maybe arguably the, the Bloc is too. So that's a big factor. Uh, so Francois Legault represents something relatively new in Quebec, but he's already starting to enshrine his legacy and has been reelected with another massive majority. Now, there have been some polarizing debates in Quebec, obviously around Bill 21 and Bill 96 and a lot of these issues, but clearly Quebecers like what they're getting from Francois Legault. What kind of a mandate does that give him? What kind of power does that give him? Well, our next guest arguing in the National Post today, uh, and maybe a reason why we should all be paying attention, that Francois Legault is now the most powerful politician in Canada. Between his commanding mandate and a weakened federal government, it's a pretty strong hand the Quebec Premier is holding. Uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program. The author of that piece is mentioned, nationalpost.com. Ben Woodfin uh, is a doctoral student uh, at McGill University, political and constitutional theorist uh, at McGill. Ben, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you again. Uh, so not a surprise that Francois Legault won a massive majority yesterday based on, on you know what all the polling was telling us. But you know, when we take a step back, how did he become such a, a dominant force in Quebec politics? Well, it's, yeah, for, um, for people maybe not as familiar with Quebec's political scene, um, it's really hard to kind of to understand the, the, the way he's, trans- he's almost single-handedly transformed the landscape here. Um, traditionally, or until, until quite recently, Quebec was very much a kind of two-party, two-party province, at least. You had the, the, the liberals that had been in many ways the, the governing party for the most part. Um, they've, you know, they've never finished worse in second place and they've never had worse results than they've had in the last two elections. Um, and then for the last 40 years or so, you had the Parti Québécois. Um, and basically the, the divide in Quebec between these two parties was a kind of a federalist versus a sovereigntist kind of party. So the federalists were the liberals, the sovereigntists were the, the PQ. Um, and this has kind of been the divide in Quebec. And then other things got wrapped into that. Um, the liberals became known as kind of the... Um, the economically safe party, you know, if you wanted jobs, you wanted growth, you wanted uh, controlled spending, you voted for the Liberals. Um, if you wanted, you know, maybe more state intervention, things like that, you voted for the PQ. Um, and what Legault has basically managed to do is he's managed to he managed to uh, cut a kind of third way in Quebec politics. Um, mm-hmm. Legault owns kind of nationalism. I think for the last four years you've seen his... Um, you've seen his nationalistic kind of uh, instincts come out in things like Bill 21 and um, sh- strengthening uh, language laws here. Um, so he owns the question, the nationalist questions, and kind of the middle of Quebec in that regard. Um, but he's also managed to divorce these questions from questions of independence and questions of sovereignty. Um, he stands up for Quebec's interests, but he doesn't necessarily, you know, threaten independence or sound like a sovereignist when he does. 
um, which is probably where most Quebecers are these days. So he's, he's managed to corner that part of the market. And then what he's, what he's also managed to do is he's moved, um, he's, he's managed to essentially claim the kind of the economic middle ground. Um, he's in some sense a kind of small-c conservative in some ways. Um, you know, he's generally a kind of pro-growth, lower taxes kind of guy, but he's not hardcore on that. Um, he's kind of in the middle in many ways. Um, but what he's does, what, what he what he gives to Quebec is, is this is this third way where um, they don't have to choose between the economy and the nation anymore. They can, as they say, as I say in the piece, they can have their cake and they eat it. They can eat it too. So what Legault has done is completely scrambled the old devising Quebec, and um, as the results showed last night, there really is no no one has come up with a good response to him yet. He he reigns supreme for now at least. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Quebec's politics have a different context, so maybe it doesn't. We can't apply how, how politics is in the rest of the country necessarily uh, cleanly to Quebec. But I mean, is is Francois Legault a conservative? He, I, I you, it, that <laughs> word is obviously a very. Um, uh, it means different things in different contexts. When in the in the Quebec context, I think it's fair to describe him as a conservative. Yeah, um, he's certainly a kind of cultural conservative, right? Um, he champions Quebec's distinct culture and, and its language and identity and wants to help protect them and is willing to do things that uh, might make people outside of Quebec quite uncomfortable in order to, in order to what he sees uh, as protecting, uh, protecting Quebec's culture and identity. Um, so in that sense, he's a conservative um, in, a, in a very kind of just basic definitional sense. Um, but the kind of conservatism that he champions uh, and that is popular here uh, is not something that, um, like you say, be quite different in the rest of the country. I don't think, um, certainly, no federal leaders or any leaders in any other, in any other provinces should be looking uh, to Legault as kind of a model for how they could govern. Uh, Quebec is just a, um, you know, it's, a, it's said very said all the time, but Quebec is a very different place, it's a very yeah. distinct place. So, um, so yeah, I think in, in Quebec's distinctive culture, Legault is a kind of conservative. Yeah. Well, maybe the extent to which it's relevant, and, and I know it, it caught the attention of, of a lot of Albertans at the time when, you know, Francois Legault was, was ascending to, to power. And, you know, he talked about the idea, for example, of, you know, Quebec weaning itself off of equalization, you know, building Quebec's economy, Quebec standing on its own two feet. I think a lot of folks out here said, great, you know, <laughs> we're on board with that. So I don't know if that plays into a sort of conservatism, but I mean, it gets to the question, Ben, of what does he want? What does Quebec want? If, if he has some leverage, if he has has some clout how might that be used well he i think um yeah, his comments uh lego i think there's there's perhaps a misunderstanding outside of quebec about kind of the role that equalization plays within quebec yeah. um you know quebec quebec is happy to take that money and isn't going to say no to it right um but there are plenty of quebecers uh, and lego has made comments to this effect that many quebecers are actually embarrassed by the fact that you know they are essentially subsidized by the rest of the country and I think someone, this is speculation, so um, this is not me quoting anyone, it's pure speculation, but someone like Legault, I think, is a, he's clearly a shrewd politician. Um, and, and Legault is a former, uh, he was a one-time separatist, he was a former cabinet minister in the PQ government uh, many years ago now. Um, and so Legault's, Legault's uh, feelings on Canada itself are, I think, probably best described as ambivalent. Um, I think he probably thinks the arrangement works for Canada, works for Quebec right now with the rest of the country, but you know that 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 could be subject to change. So um, something Legault I think recognizes is that if Quebec was ever going to leave, um, Quebec's always going to it's going to be easier for Quebec to leave one day if it's richer rather than poorer for the rest of the country. So um, so that's speculative, but I think that's one way to read his comments about it. Um, in terms of what Legault wants, I think um, this is uh, this is why Quebec, Legault is worth paying attention to now. 
Um, Legault has this kind of enormous mandate in, domestically in Quebec, and as I say in the National Post piece, um, is a weakened, a weakened liberal government uh, in Ottawa that you know is getting long in the tooth, um, is facing if whenever the next election comes, is going to face a serious challenge. Um, in Pierre Polyer, probably the most serious challenge they faced since 2015. Um, and so if they have any chance of winning again, uh, as always with the Liberals, it's going to run through Quebec. Um, so Trudeau is going to be even less eager than he already is to pick fights with Legault and what will want to remain in his good book, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, that gives Legault a big hand to play. And so the question of where he goes next is, uh, it's an open question. Uh, during the election, and even before the election, it seems like the next kind of front in uh, Quebec's kind of cultural battles and fights are to do with immigration. Um, Quebec has, Quebec kind of uniquely has much more control over immigration than other provinces do. Um, and Quebec is quite restrictive in that regard. You know, it um, tends to want immigrants, you know, that speak French. Um, and there's, you know, there's just not as many immigrants to come here that, that speak French. So, um, and Quebec is, in, Quebec is, you know, for better or for worse, I would say for worse, see, um, see immigration as a threat to Quebec's, uh, to Quebec's culture. Um, and so this may be the next battle um, with Quebec that Legault picks with Ottawa. Um, he suggests that he wants more powers um, over immigration um, himself, and, uh, and you know, those powers are already quite extensive. So what exactly he wants is, as I think somewhat unclear, but this could become a kind of key dividing line uh, between Quebec and the rest of the country, and especially as you know, Canada's immigration numbers uh, nationally are quite high, are at the highest levels than they've ever been. Um, and there's no there's no sign that that's going to change at the national level. Um, so what that means for Quebec long term is um, potentially potentially threatening to Quebec, right? If the rest of the country keeps growing, getting bigger, and getting more populated, and Quebec slows down, Quebec you know gradually becomes a smaller and smaller part of Canada as a result, yeah. and that threatens Quebec's ability to project power within the federation. So. Um, these are the kinds of questions that are on the minds of uh, not just of Legault, but of his base, of the kind of nationalist, soft nationalist base, the people that uh, have given him this huge mandate. So um, given the hand he's got to play, I think um, Legault, Legault holds all the cards in his deck right now. And, um, you know, the rest of us are going to, in some sense, be uh, re- dealing with the consequences of what he chooses to do with that power. We'll leave it on that note. Very interesting, Ben. As mentioned, your piece is up at nationalpost.com. I always appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Take care, Ben. Thanks. Uh, Ben Woodfinden is a doctoral student, political and constitutional theorist at McGill University. So his piece today on, you know, the kind of clout uh, Francois Legault has and what does that mean? What does that mean for the rest of us? Like, it doesn't seem like we're talking about, you know, constitutional chaos where the Quebec government's trying to reopen the Constitution. Doesn't seem as though he's the kind of politician to, to be demanding, you know, more money from Ottawa. Uh, but he definitely, you know, is is prepared to pick some fights with the federal government, particularly around immigration issues. I've already seen, you know, them push the envelope on on language issues, Bill ninety six, cultural issues, religious issues, Bill twenty one, and not a lot of pushback from Ottawa. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.